Ronald Reagan, the 40th U.S. president, was noted saying, quote, How do you tell a communist? Well, it's someone who reads Marx and Lenin. And how do you tell an anti-communist? It's someone who understands Marx and Lenin. Now, understanding doesn't come without intentional mental effort, without analyzing and looking at the issues from a bird's eye view and as well as worm's eye view. It's developing the patience and caution to not just adopt the ideas without first studying it from multiple perspectives. Even if, and especially so, when it's popular to just go with the flow. It's Saturday, June 19th, 2021, and today we're taking a look at the following top stories. The Supreme Court decision that dropped this week. What is going on in, with Portland PD? Biden versus Pope. Then we review Biden versus Putin. And finally, we take a look at whether prayer is finally back in school. All right, welcome to Lifering, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what is going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this past week. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by my friend and regular co-host of the show, Vadim. Hello. Hi, Vadim. And today joining us is my sister, Nastya, as our first guest co-host. So welcome. Hi. Hi. Glad to be here. Yeah. How are you guys? Pretty good. Can't complain. I mean, I would, but <laughs> who'd listen, right? <laughs> listen. Not like you have a podcast. <laughs> what about you, Nasty? I'm doing great. Doing great? It's, it's a great, good Saturday, good way to start the day. Yeah. Are you excited about the show? Nervous? Nervous and excited, uh, but... That's fine. We're all nervous. All good things. Yeah, we're exploring this idea of giving, uh, inviting other conservative friends. Uh, well, that would help us, I guess, carry some of the load of the show, but also gain an extra, you know, fresh perspective, the commentary. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I know we've gained some Bellingham listeners since past week, so thank you for joining. Welcome. Uh, and now let's take a look at our usual COVID briefing before we get to our top five of this week. So last week we learned that Seattle was the first major city to fully vaccinate 70% of eligible residents, right? This week, uh, here's what I hear. On Monday, Vermont is the first state to partially vaccinate at least 80% of its eligible population of 12 and older allowing it to lift all remaining state pandemic restrictions, according to New York Times. But then, but then there's, there's more. So Forbes reported that two of most populous states in the U.S. lifted their remaining COVID-19 restrictions Tuesday after imposing strict restrictions throughout the pandemic. As New York lifted its remaining statewide restriction in response to lifting the state's, I mean, to hitting the state's 70% vaccination goal, while California dropped its COVID-19 measures and mask mandate, amid falling cases. Now, in our own state uh, of Washington, we're still in, technically, in with restrictions. Governor Jainsley has said uh, that Washington state will fully reopen with no restrictions at the end of June, or when 70% of state residents, 16 and older, have one vaccine dose, whichever comes sooner, according to Olympian. Now, according to CNBC, WHO says Delta is becoming the dominant COVID variant globally. Nothing new. Uh, COVID-19 variant Delta first identified in India. See how they still have to use the India? Like you still, you can't use Delta, Alpha, Beta without like saying where they come from. Yeah. I mean, uh, as soon as it's normalized, I guess they'll start using the letters more. But like if all these have the Greek letter, then which one was like the original one, I guess? Wuhan, probably variant. Oh, okay. I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, they're saying studies suggest Delta is around 60 more percent more transmissible than alpha oh the variant first identified in uk mm. anyways speaking of uk according to axis cases are now on the rise amid the spread of the highly transmissible covid19 delta variant thursday uk total is highest since february 19 so this past thursday so they're their cases are rising. And that's considering that they've been vaccinating as fast as U.S., if not faster. According to government data, 80% of U.K. adults' population has received their first dose of vaccine and 58.2 have received their second shot. Now, in U.S., currently, we have 52.2 fully vaccinated as of Friday, yesterday, June 18th. And since U.S. really needs another vaccine and the demand is so huge, that's sarcasm, of course, uh, but nevertheless, the fourth vaccine is now available. It's called Novavax. According to their studies, it's on par with Pfizer, Moderna, and uh, slightly performs better than J&J. Overall, I think the reopening news are good news, or is good news, or 
are good news. If not the inflation, it would be probably the great reopening. But uh, the good news are, whether Biden goals of 70% is met or not, we might not have to do COVID briefing anymore as soon as, I don't know, come June. I'm going to miss it. really am. <laughs> yes. I'm sure we will. Well, let's talk about the third branch of U.S. government, the Supreme Court. Now, I'm quoting from their official website. The court is the highest tribunal in the nation for all cases and controversies arising under the Constitution or the laws of the United States. As the final arbiter of the law, the court is charged with ensuring that American people the promise of equal justice under law, thereby also functions as guardian and interpreter of the Constitution. Well, I made it through that one. Their unique governing body. Uh, the team has always apparently consisted of nine justices, including the chief justice, and it has been so since 1800s. The president usually appoints them, Senate gives advice, and ultimately confers them, or I guess doesn't. Uh, currently, we have a conservative majority, six conservative judges out of nine, and three are liberal-leaning. Uh, three of the latest judges were appointed actually by Donald Trump, and of course, they serve without limit in years. So they go on as long as they go on. In fact, the law says that they shall hold their office during good behavior. Uh, this means that justices hold office as long as they choose and can only be removed by or from the office by impeachment. Also, of course, y you might know more, you know, if you ever looked into this, but each state has a Supreme Court. They usually just deal with the appeals from the lower courts, right? So, so the decision of the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court, a federal court, is binding on state courts, when it decides on issues of federal law, such as constitutional interpretation. Anyway, so having a conservative judge makes a big difference. Makes a big difference in terms of how quickly U.S. will lean one way or the other in terms of the law. So now a few episodes back, we discussed how in a 5-4 vote, Supreme Court overruled the restrictions in California on prayer meetings in homes. And this went on to show how just one vote matters. Even though there was majority conservative, there's a judge that jumped the fence and conservative judge decided to join the dissenting side. Now, this week, uh, two decisions made the headlines. One is ab about Obamacare and another one was a major victory for religious liberty. So in terms of Obamacare, do you remember when you had to pay the penalty? Did you ever end up paying the penalty, any of you? I did one year. You did, right? I did, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's like a real thing. I, I know that uh, our uncle also paid a penalty, I think, because he was unable to get insurance for his family. So when they just came out with it, it was like, if you don't get insurance, you get fined. Well, anyway, so in 2017, the individual penalty or taxes, it was defined in the law, was, uh, what is it, 695 per adult and $347.50 per child. Since then, it was dropped. In 2017, it was uh, dropped, I believe. Ten Republican states, including Texas, have since have appealed to strike down Obamacare, arguing that since the penalty was reduced to zero by Congress, because they didn't drop it, they just kind of dropped it, reduced it to zero. They said it's still, you're still required to get insurance and you still get penalized with a zero dollar tax, if that makes sense. So the Republican states argued, hey, if the tax is unconstitutional, then maybe the whole Obamacare is unconstitutional, right? And should be dropped because it, well, it, it's not a very conservative program. Right, to begin with. Uh, the ruling this week was 7-2 in favor of keeping Obamacare. Uh, two of Trump's appointed justices voted in favor, including Amy Barrett, the latest judge to be appointed. So Obamacare is here to stay. But what's more interesting is this other major victory case. So in Philadelphia, there's this Catholic Social Services Agency. Uh, they work with the city's foster system, and they're in agreement to place children in foster care. Now, they don't place children with same-sex couples because they're Catholics. Right. And, you know, like just like abortion, just like same sex marriage, it's not part of Catholics faith or belief. Right. Not not part of Christian faith. Philadelphia expressed their concern and stopped working with the Catholic group. And, you know, all the appeals began. Here's here's according to New York Times. I quote, Philadelphia stopped placing children with foster families through the agency. Catholic Social Services, after a 2018 article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, described its policy against placing children with same-sex couples. The agency and several foster parents sued the city, saying the decision violated their First Amendment rights to religious freedom and free speech. Lawyers for the city said the case Fulton versus City of Philadelphia was an easy one. When the government hires independent contractors like the Catholic agency, they said it acts on its behalf and can include provisions banning discrimination in its contracts. The article goes on to say lawyers for the agency responded that it responded that it merely wanted to continue work that it had been doing for centuries, adding that no gay couple has ever applied to it. And if one had, they said the couple would have been referred to another agency. So that's kind of the gist of the story. So this Thursday, the court unanimously 
voted 9-0 in favor of the Catholic group. And in turn, of course, in favor of religious freedoms when it clashes with these anti-discrimination laws. So are you surprised by the ruling? I mean, surprised, not really. I do think that as far as the Catholic Church goes, like it's the most institutionalized, uh, like as far as Christian groups, uh, it's the most solid institution, I guess, like body to be involved in, in these kind of cases. I do think like maybe in the future we'll see fringe cases come up where people will try to combat this. But we had a story maybe back in March where there was a Christian organization that was um, mm-hmm. basically of their own accord. They started to accept uh, like same sex uh, couples to adopt children and so but i think this was an easy case because not only is you know you have the provisions of a uh like you said the private uh, organization um it, it's an independent contractor and they're working with the city like i think there's an argument that could be made a secular argument for not allowing homosexual couples to adopt kids like um there's studies that show that kids that are raised in these kind of families are like five times more likely to be sexually abused mm-hmm. and all that stuff and so uh, surprised no I, I was actually pleasantly surprised um, by the, you know, unanimous vote of nine to zero. I would expect, you know, at least a few right. votes in the other direction just because of how, you know, everything is right now about inclusivity, including, you know, same sex marriages and all of that. Like I, I would have expected something, you know, in, in their favor, but. It was a pleasant kind of surprise. So, so here, here's, let me read a few more quotes from it. Here's what Chief Justice John Roberts said. It is plain that the city's actions have burdened the Catholic social services religious exercise by putting it to the choice of curtailing its mission or approving relationships inconsistent with its beliefs. Here's another quote by Justice John Roberts. Catholic social services seeks only an accommodation that will allow it to continue serving the children of Philadelphia in a manner consistent with its religious beliefs. It does not seek to impose those beliefs on anyone else. So I guess what are your thoughts on what what do we do when we have gay rights versus religious rights? Because both are protected currently under the Constitution. I guess if you take a, an example that's maybe a little bit extreme, like if you have like radical jihadists come to your orphanage, like, hey, I'll take your whole stock. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, you have you have the right to say no. And I mean, in this case, they're saying, you know, gay people come and then they refer them to another organization. You, you have to impose some kind of discretion. I think it's totally within the bounds of reason to say that, like, you know, based on based on data, based on based on beliefs, like it's I don't know how much data would play in, but yeah, beliefs. Because, I mean, would they take the data? Unlikely. Right, because it's homophobic to talk about. Exactly. And so, and I think this issue is similar to the whole cake story. Remember baking cake? So in 2018, uh, the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of Jack Phillips, a Christian baker from Colorado. Uh, Here's the thing. This guy actually never, ever turned away or refused uh, to sell anything for any gay couple or gay person, or doesn't matter, for anyone. You can come into the store, you can shop, buy what you want. The only line he said I'm drawing is if you're asking for custom work. Now, we had a similar case in Washington, uh, in Rich- Richland, Washington. Uh, in 2019, uh, Washington Supreme Court, so this is not the federal Supreme Court, but Washington Supreme Court ruled against a florist who wouldn't put together a bouquet, or I guess a custom arrangement for the gay couple. So I, I think there's... Like, you kind of have to have space for for both, I think. A, a church organization or Christian business owner should have his rights to serve whomever he, you know, his conscience allows him to. Now, gay people also should have the right to go and buy from whomever they want, right? But they shouldn't impose their beliefs on others. Now, I keep stressing the point that we, the people, ultimately affect the direction of the country politically. Yes, there will always be bigger cogs of God timing in the play. But God always worked through people and brought down and rose up kingdoms through the work of people and their actions and their decisions. So we have the civil responsibility to be informed, to understand the laws of the land we live in, to vote in people that are going to uphold conservative values, and above all, to pray for this nation. Well, did you know that in Portland, Oregon, a few months ago, the headlines were 2,000% increase in uh, homicides. The mayor, Ted Wheeler, at that point was asking for two million. I think we covered the story. Maybe not. He was asking for $2 million in emergency funds from the you know, federal government. And uh, that's after rallying you know, for so long after you know, the whole defund the police movement, right? It didn't take long to prove that cutting police force in half will not reduce crime. It only inspires more crime. Since now there's obviously less police power or manpower to, to deal with it. Well, Paul Cassell, 
a former U.S. District Court and Law Professor at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law, he conducted a research on what he called the Minneapolis Effect. Here's a quote from his findings according to the national interest. Cassell estimates that as a result of depolicing during June and July 2020, approximately 710 additional victims were murdered and more than 2,800 victims were shot. We talk about mass shootings that happen, right? These are huge numbers. It's also noteworthy, uh, he goes on to say, given that efforts to defund the police were conducted in the same or in the name of saving black lives, that according to Cassell, more than 80% of the victims of the increase in homicides are minority victims. So, absurd, right? Yet it's all in the name of some elusive goal, which is kind of just like communism, right? Is you, you fight, you know, the fight for it is here and now, and if we're not seeing what we're fighting for, we just got to keep fighting more at any cost because it's just within reach. Yeah, and the, the end will justify the means. That's what happened in Soviet Union. And that's the mentality. It's like, it doesn't matter whether we're achieving results or not. We just keep fighting because we're so close to it. It's, it's here. Well, anyways, in the recent news out of Portland, according to U.S. News, here's a quote. Earlier this week, a grand jury indicted the pol Portland police officer on an assault charge for what prosecutors allege was an excessive and unlawful use of force during a protest last summer. Now, Portland Police Bureau Officer Corey Budworth was indicted on Tuesday with one count of fourth-degree assault, misdemeanor stemming from the August 2020 incident. The Multnomah County District Attorney Office said, man, so much words in here. The indictment marked the first time a Portland police officer faced prosecution. Oh, am I going to get through this one? Stemming from striking or firing at someone during a protest, according to the Oregonian newspaper. So as a result, all 50 members of the crowd control team of Portland police have resigned from their positions. So do you think it's a good sign, a positive sign, or, or, or a bad sign? Um, I think it's a bad sign just looking at, you know, the history. As you mentioned earlier, there was a, you know, 2000 increase in homicides after, you know, defunding the police. And just looking at, you know, patterns, I feel like this is just going to increase the violence. The crowd control units, I guess, were the only thing holding the the shambles of Portland together. And, and now that, you know, you have 50 people who are very different levels of experience, I'm sure, but all that stuff comes with, uh, with just being out there and, uh, you know, those tiny decisions you make uh, every time you clock on, you know, you can't replace that by just hiring new people. Like, yeah, sure, there's always going to be, there's always going to be people to fill those roles, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the effectiveness is going to be way down. And I, and I hope it sends a strong message to the rest of the country because, I mean, now, hey, you want to protest? Portland is probably one of the best places for you because there's nobody to... I mean, hold on, what? Like, I, I wonder what's going to come out in the next few days because if if I was a BLM protester, this would be the time to to go. I mean, because it's all about looting, right? And, and burning, <laughs> burning. Here's the thing. What we're seeing, you know, all of this play out, this political playing of racism and justice, guns issues, police brutality, all of these other issues. And in the end, it's the people who pay the price. It's going to be the businesses in downtown that are going to be paying. It's the families who live in Portland or big cities who, you know, settled down because it was a cool place to live in, you know, hip, weird, but Portland. It's going to be the minority communities that ironically get hit the most. And it's the victims of the thousands of percent of rising homicides. So hear me out on this one. And, and, you know, let me know if I'm stretching this a bit too far here. But Biden this week released national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. All right. And there's like four pillars. Understand and share. I'll, I'll say DT for domestic terrorism. Understand and share DT related info. Prevent DT recruitment and mobilization to violence. Disrupt and deter DT activity. Confront long term contributors to DT. So think Trump, right? And all the other supporters, right? I mean, when you read this, it's almost like you can see this visible bias towards the January 6th Capitol break-in. But listen to this and, and, you know, and tell me if this doesn't sound like what the protesters have done in major cities across the U.S. So here's a quote from, I guess, report release. It says, under the federal law, domestic terrorism is defined as activities that involve acts dangerous to human life, a violation of the criminal laws of United States or of any state, appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. 
Tell me that doesn't sound like BLM. I like mean, the, the, the that's not what they intended. The tactics sound a lot like KGB to me. Yeah. Like it's basically like you have to understand and share DT related info. It's like you have to report if you know something. You get punished if you don't. Uh, prevent DT recruitment and mobilization. It's like you, yeah. You can. I mean, you can draw parallels to all of these points. I think it 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 sadly does remind of. Uh, so I'm going right now through the uh, what is it? Gulag the Archipelago. How do you say it in English? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Recount of how he went through the camps of Soviet Russia. And yeah, the, the way that Russia pursued its, or the Soviet Union pursued its uh, dissenters, I guess, was horrible. And it was happening in, you know, w- with the good intentions. Like I said, chasing that communism that's just like, as soon as we put the last guy in jail, like we're going to, we're going to, we're going to finally get to this point. So. Well, the thing is, like, it, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but the KGB wasn't even like a huge spy network. It was a small core, but then they used intimidation tactics for just like your everyday guy to to basically, rep, you know, report on your neighbor. If something happens and you didn't report it, you know, you have to answer why you didn't. A lot of parallels. Yep. Well, Abe Lincoln apparently wrote a concluding word for this segment. I don't know if you knew that. He said the following uh, statement. America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was the oldest of four children. Uh, He's also the current president of the United States, and he was born into a Catholic family. He married first in 1966. According to Wikipedia, Biden married Nelia Hunter. She was a student at the university, and uh, they married after overcoming her parents' reluctance for her to wed a Roman Catholic. Now, the ceremony was held in a Catholic church, in New York, unfortunately, on December 18th, 1972, a few weeks after Biden's election into Senate, his wife, Nelia, and one-year-old daughter, Naomi, were killed in an automobile accident while Christmas shopping in Delaware. He almost resigned from the Senate at that point. The, uh, the Wikipedia article goes on to say that the, the accident has, had filled him with anger and religious doubt. He wrote that, quote, he felt that God had played a horrible trick on him, and he said that he had trouble focusing on work. Now, three years later, he met, and then two years later, they after that, they he married his current wife, Jill Biden, who, according uh, to him, helped him with the renewal of interest in politics and life. Now, they both are Roman Catholics, and they attend a mass at St. Joseph's on Brandywine in Greenville, Delaware. They're both Catholics. What do you so far make of Biden's Catholic faith? Well, he does a good job using the label, at least. I mean, it's uh, for better or for worse. Did you know that he actually uh, almost became a priest at some point? Like, mom told him, go to college. And so he eventually ended up, you know, studying rather than going, I guess. Because he was raised in a Catholic school as well. So, like, around nuns. Uh, So, apparently, he was very, very religious when he was, uh, you know, younger kid, I guess. Then after his uh, the death of his wife, he showed up in church meeting with a local bishop uh, trying to get a special permission, a, a dispensation, I think is what it's called, to become a priest. So, I mean, this guy was really like, first of all, devastated by the loss, but like he was literally, you know, we could have had priest Biden, I guess, or Pope Biden, if you will. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, here's a quote that I saw about Biden in the Washington Post article. Check this out. If there are Catholic icons in this world and this country, they are Pope Francis and Joe Biden, said Massimo Fagioli, a Villanova University theology professor and author of Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States. So I think it goes like this. It's Jesus, then it's Pope Francis, and then it's Joe Biden. I think that's how the lineup goes for, well, I guess maybe not half of America, but a majority of America, those Catholics that did vote for him. Because we did, I, I got to say, there was a split vote uh, of Catholics, like evenly. Mm. Half of them are supporting Biden, half of them are not. Anyway, here's the big scoop, according to U.S. News. Quote, a divided conference of U.S. Roman Catholic bishops announced on Friday that they had voted to draft a statement on Holy Communion that may admonish Catholic politicians, including Joseph uh, Joe Biden, who support abortion rights. Uh, this 168 versus 55 decision, or one, well, how would you say that? 168-55 decision to draft a teaching document on the Eucharist, a holy sacrament in the Roman Catholic faith, came after two hours of debate at the Virtual Assembly of the United States Catholic Bishops Conference on Thursday, in which bishops weighed the merits of reaffirming churches' teaching against the possibility of sowing partisan division. 
So the Catholic Church already saw a decline in membership uh, for the past two decades. Uh, it was a drop of 20%. This is a highly politicized issue. So what do you guys think of the response of Catholics once this is implemented, like meaning how people will respond? What are the consequences? What are your thoughts on this? I think because of a, a big divide of how even Catholics, there's a big divide on how they view abortion. Like many are against abortion, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of Catholics that are pro-abortion. So I feel like this will create a big divide, you know, and even more might leave the Catholic Church because of this, because right. it's such a it's such a big issue right now. If you don't believe in abortion, you don't believe in human rights, you know, as people say. So I feel like it's it's going to create a, a divide in the Catholic Church. Like, considering that they've already been declining in membership, yeah. you're right. It, it It's likely that it will go downhill even more. If the main goal of the Catholic Church is to retain attendance numbers, then yeah, I would I would think that easiest way is to water down your gospel and then not hold people like Biden accountable for their controversial beliefs. Like, so like we were talking about like, oh, what's the implications of like Biden calling himself a Catholic? I think a lot of people, the reason so many Catholics, I guess, voted for Biden despite of his uh, positions, I guess, is that the church as an institution has so much authority that they they could potentially hold him accountable uh, for his uh, for his statements and for his beliefs. And so I think that's like precisely what is happening now. It just seems that for people who are holding on to, let's say, Catholic belief, uh, you know, out of traditional reasons, this might be a turning point. This might be like, oh, okay, you know, I'm not part of this institution anymore because of that, because it is such a divisive issue. So Biden replied, he, here's what he replied on Friday. He said, quote, that's a private matter, and I don't think that it's going to happen, meaning the document that will admonish the politicians. He also said that he personally opposes abortion, but he supports a woman's right to choose. Make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he's, I, I don't know, but that, that's, that's what Biden said. I mean, and it totally makes sense to him, I guess. He's perched pretty high on the fence there. <laughs> yeah. So the U- U.S. News went on to report. Check this out. This is interesting. 60 Catholic Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives released a statement on this Friday, yesterday, urging the church not to deny elected official communi- elected officials communion over one issue. Because I guess that's how, you, that's how you change the church's stance. You just kind of issue a political statement. Here's what they said. The sacraments of Holy Communion is central to the life and, of practicing Catholics and the weaponization of the Eucharist to Democratic lawmakers for their support of a woman's safe and legal access to abortion is contradictory, they said. Okay, so this is this is Catholic Democrats in the House of Representatives. So in the same way that, I mean, I guess these people have as much legitimacy as, as Biden does in terms of, like, speaking for... Uh, speaking for church doctrine and speaking for scripture and so it's like i don't and we've we've talked about this before on the show it's like i i don't don't think people like fully understand that denying some of the eucharist is not a like it's not a death sentence like you it's meant to be like it's a church disciplinary measure to have people you know give people a wake-up call my my personal opinion and i'm sure a lot of people think is when it comes to church you can't water down teachings based on what people feel and what kind of opinions people have like the beliefs of a catholic church should stay that and they should not take some of those away based on what other people will feel so especially when it's especially so when it's politicians i mean it's almost like don lemon you know saying that's not what jesus teaches you know i think it was the second episode where we talked about that um yeah so don lemon leading theologian of our time (laughs) right yeah so it's it's just really interesting how they're like urging the church not to deny, you know, please don't do this. Like, let's change the Bible. Let's change the Bible. Let's see if we can change maybe the Catholic doctrine. But come on, you're not going to divide the country over this, are you? Well, it plays into like the whole idea of identity politics where you're basically like, like you're so attached to being part of this group of Catholics that you don't, you lose sight of what it means in right. the first place. Well, in November, there will be a meeting where uh, the draft that the Committee on Doctrine will put together will be reviewed by the Catholic bishops. But that's all the way in November. Until then, we can just ignore the fact that Biden's Catholic faith is not very Catholic. All right, welcome to Lightning Round. This is where we try to run through the stories for your awareness, for just 
I guess, to offer a brief comment on some of them. So in the news, in the world news, uh, Dutch princess said she will not be accepting payments when she turns 18. Now she's a princess. Princess Amelia, Amalia, has decided for the next few years not to accept the allowance, which is worth some 1.6 million euros, which is 1.9 million dollars for the people here in US, per year that she's entitled to to receive annually once she turns 18 in December. Now, she's not receiving it because she feels like she's not facing, I guess, hardships. Like, she compared herself to other students in school, and she's like, I guess she got enlightened by the idea that she doesn't really need the money right now. She can't offer anything back. I mean, that's a pretty solid salary for being a princess. Very, uh, very noble, you might say. Uh, Let's see, other news. Israeli airstrikes target Gaza sites first time since ceasefire. So that happened this week because some balloons, incendiary balloons were sent over from Gaza. They keep doing that. They'll tie up explosives to balloons and send them over to Israel. Uh, And this is all happening as Israel government is being changed, right? So there's this new coalition of uh, leaders that are now going to be there instead of Netanyahu. And finally, in the world news, uh, North Korea's North Korea's King Young Un looks much thinner, causing health speculations. Yeah. Kim Jong Un, more like Slim Jong Un, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> yeah. You got that one. Uh, without joke, joking aside, Korea's Kim vows to be ready for confrontation with U.S. According to Associated Press, apparently they had this heated discussion. You know, whatever they're con- whatever, however they gather and talk about things. And he, uh, yeah, he expressed that. Korea should be ready for confrontation with U.S. So there's a new, uh, there's a new, I guess, national holiday, Juneteenth. Black Americans uh, are celebrating. This is a turning point, I think. I think it was celebrated before. It's uh, right because uh, it says that uh, June 19, 1865 is yeah. when. Was, uh, is that the story behind it? It's been unofficially, yeah. I guess, uh, multiple st- a, yeah. a thing. It's the day when slaves in Texas were finally told the news about the emancipation. But I feel like a lot of people have heard about it for the first time yeah. this week. Have you heard of Juneteenth? I have. Yeah. Before? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, the federal employees were left uh, or were let go this. Like they had the day off actually this Friday as he was signing it or the day before he was signing. He signed it a day before Friday. So they had it off because it falls on Saturday this week. So, well, which is today. So there's that. Looking forward to next year. So real estate prices around the world are flashing the same kind of uh, bubble warnings that we haven't seen since uh, since around 2008. You know, New Zealand, Canada, Sweden, they have the, the housing markets are some of the most... Um, I guess are are picking up speed at, at the yeah, uh, and so you know there's an economist Niraj Shah that wrote in a report that you know there's record low interest rates, unparalleled uh, fiscal stimulus, lockdown savings ready to be used as deposits, uh, limited stock, expectations of of recovery in the economy. This all contributing to this. And uh, I mean, I guess you could say inflation. Yeah, I, I, it will be interesting to see because there's people on both sides. Like there's plenty of uh, analysts on on either side saying that no way it's going to happen because the conditions that were in 2008 are in no way how they are today yeah we might see the same signals but the the way the government is set up the way the i guess the financial industry is a little more secure than it was in 2008 yeah i mean i guess if you look at it and i'm not i'm not an economist by any means but if you know our money is losing value at the rate that it is like these rising prices are not going to even mean anything in the news of race today um if you tap through tiktok you'll fa- you'll fall down a slang filled dance crazed rabbit hole a la alice in wonderland um so white people on social media and real life regularly appropriate african-american vernacular english like slay sis and other words like lit lit woke spill the tea spill the tea all of that and nowadays if you know, if you are white, you can be considered racist if you say that, especially in the wrong context. Some of these phrases come directly from the black LGBTQ community, and experts say that this perpetuates racism, erases black contributions, and fuels cultural misunderstandings. Simply put, it's black ling- linguistic appropriation. So now it's inappropriate, right? I mean, because that's the word appropriation, right? It's what's appropriate and what not. Is that right? I th- I what's think appropriate within the bounds of... I think appropriation is like when you take something from a different culture, culture. And, and try to make play it like you own it. Like or something. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, well, to those experts, I just want to make a comment. It's like, what do you want from us? Is because there's because you have integ- you want integration, you want equal rights, uh, but then you also want uh, basically like deny white people the privilege of using words in the English language, uh, which like a language evolves over time. That's fine. I mean, yeah. it's a, it's an aspect of culture. It doesn't have to like necessarily be like a like a black thing to say, like, language is how we integrate, too. There's a quote that says, what is so wonderful is that these cultures cultures keep inventing new language based on their experiences. Um, So while it is true that things are stolen, um, quote-unquote, it's also true that language keeps getting invented anew. All right, this is what the experts are saying. We're stealing the language (laughs) when we use this. This is this is absurd. Like, this is just, okay, I get the N-word. We might have... um, you know, like they can use it, but we can't. But I get what? it. Sure, it could be. It's an offensive word. Bad history. All right. But what about lit? Like, or or I don't know, bro. Which lit word? Is that the lit word? The word the itself. Word the the word. Yeah, right. Like, what do you do with that? It's part of it's part of our culture. Like, what do you do in general with people who I don't know? There's so much cross cultural. Like, what do should Latin people be concerned of the past that we're using a bunch of their language in our daily scientific like for science only? I feel like it. it it's a testament to our lack of creativity, I guess, mm-hmm. and just that, like, you see something and then you repeat it. Like, the article uses the word mimic, which is, like, you're making fun of them, which I guess that's how a lot of slang starts out, where you're like, oh, like, this is silly, I'm just going to say it. And then then it replaces, like, the words you normally use. So, I mean, lack of creativity, sure, but it's not, like, it's not meant to, like, put anybody down. People just think it's cool. But we also use, like, words from other languages as well. Like, I don't know, I'm thinking of... What, what, like a Russian word that you would use? Oh, yeah, because Russia is not a race. Russia you can say it, but Russia. you have to apologize for U.S.-Russia relations in, in history. Which aren't... <laughs> they're, they're not really in the... Well, we'll get to Russian-U.S. relations a bit later. So JetBlue is an airline um, whose crew caused a, uh, a little bit of a fiasco with uh, somebody from the business class offering their eye mask to somebody uh, in economy class. Apparently, they wanted to make sure they didn't establish a dangerous precedent of people sharing stuff from like the perks of business class. And it's like, oh, what's stopping everybody from giving their things over to you scrubs in the back? Like, and, 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 You know, I, I looked at it. It was like they can't share food, for example, which makes sense. It's in their policy because right. apparently you have unlimited supply of food. So if you share your... Passing oh, yeah. on the right, so that makes sense. Feed or the bl- whole plane. right, or blankets. You can't share blankets because those are in limited supply and something like that. But like mask, you open it up. You're not going to return it. You're not giving it back like a blanket. It's not food that goes unlimited. And so really, it was just them being. I don't know what the word is. Like just standing their ground and you know, like oh, it's against our policy. We don't care if another person decided to be nice to you. That mask has to go back to that person immediately. You know, or you're off the plane. Or, like, they just made a big deal about it. I've seen that happen. I mean, like, uh, not this exact thing, but whenever, like, a flight attendant gets in an argument with a passenger, like, once you start making a scene, like, the passenger's not going to win. Yeah, because they're in power. They'll see it to the end. But this, you know, comes in, 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 you know, with the rise of recent incidents because over, like, not eye masks, but over face masks. You know, that's been an issue with a ton of cases where people were kicked off and banned from flying and so on hold on does that mean they're banned even when the restrictions are lifted because that's that's horrible banned over a mask I don't think that was so. a temper mm-hmm. I, I hope not yeah. but then again there's other airline companies so. yeah you never know in weather uh, there is a tropical storm named Claudette that formed earlier this Saturday uh, that threatened to bring heavy rain and life-threatening flash flooding across the coast of Mississippi and Alabama and the far western Florida panhandle, according to the National Hurricane Center. Uh, Forecasters expect flooding to persist through the weekend along the central Gulf Coast, with flood impacts spreading into interior parts of the southeast. So the weather system was forecast to slam into several states, um, including Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and the Florida Panhandle. Um, so there are, you know, lots of storm warnings for these that are in effect for these states. And the storm is expected to produce up to 12 inches of rain through the weekend along the go- along the coast. Experts recommend to, you know, to prepare for the possible tropical storm that is coming um, by restocking disaster kits with medications and at least seven days of non-perishable food, three gallons of water for each person and pet. And, and pets. And oh, pet. oh, for pets? Yeah. Wow. 
I guess when it rains, it pours, it pours. because, it, well, <laughs> I was going to say when it, <laughs> when it rains, then the heat waves come. Because while there's storms on this coast in the southwest, uh, like Texas and, mm -hmm. and uh, California, there's like a heat wave that's been going on through this whole week. I don't know how yeah. it is right now, but peak temperatures are forecast to reach 115 degrees Fahrenheit in interior California through the week, according to state. So this was, I guess, what? Mm -hmm. This was in the beginning of the week. Oh, Yesterday wow. was 108 in Sacramento, says Dennis. He's <laughs> a, he's a, he runs behind the scenes uh, of, of the podcast. Dennis, welcome to the show. So I'm having a hard time really looking and seeing what he's wearing. But Kanye West uh, was seen in uh, in Los Angeles yeah. with what looks like uh, like a mixture of like a gunny sack and a ski mask. And it's got some kind of, I don't know if it's like a leopard print or... Uh, it looks lightweight, but, it, but it's, yeah. kind of, it's like something that you would put on like... I think it means it as like an improvised turban type of thing. It's really worth taking a look at. Type it in. It's very strange. Oh, well, he looks like Kanye. a stormtrooper kind of. But it's, <laughs> It just yeah. doesn't look serious, I'll tell you that. Like it, it, it literally thing. looks like a bag over your head. Just just a, like a potato sack. Yeah. But it's a stylish potato sack. Kanye's doing it. <laughs> well, Kanye's the king of fashion, so... <laughs> yep. Hey, you know what? You're right. Maybe in, uh, what, a decade? Everybody's going to walk around with these <laughs> potato sacks. Yeah, get them while they're cheap. Okay, if you spend your time scrolling through social media, I'm sure you've come across the popular popular meme of the excited-looking Shiba Inu dog, um, which is now known and considered as one of the Internet's most iconic and renowned memes. It was placed up for auction on Tuesday and ran for approximately three days before the auction winner um, placed the winning bid on Friday of $4 million dollars. Um, which made it the most expensive non-fungible token or NFT of all time. So that's the Dogecoin face mm -hmm. dog thingy, right? Mm -hmm. And essentially they sold the digital version of the picture, right? That's what NFTs are. A, a signature on the back of a d digital copy of the image that everybody has. Just stating it for those who haven't. <laughs> right. Does anybody know what kind of crypto he used to buy that? You think he bought it with crypto? It would be funny crypto. if he bought oh. it with Dogecoin. I don't think right now it's, it's <laughs> a Ethereum? good price. Ethereum? Yeah. Oh, okay. I see. So it like almost 1,700 Ethereum coins. Yeah. yeah. I guess that, yeah. I mean, these people are really buying this stuff for bragging rights. That's all. Just to go down in history books. History in the future will be different than it is was before right like in the future it'll be like who was the i don't know most popular youtuber and who designed a website first and who founded tiktok or whatnot so makes sense yeah i think if any meme to deserved someone. to be you know yeah. the record holding <laughs> it's doge it's doge it's doge to the moon speaking of the moon and space you see what i did there mm -hmm. uh the world's first wooden satellite <laughs> What <laughs> the world? <laughs> Come on, the world's first wooden satellite will launch this year, according to Space.com. I don't know what they were thinking, but this is a wooden satellite that's going to be going up in space. weighs about two point two pounds. Uses a special type of coated plywood called. Uh, it doesn't matter what it's called. It's W I S A WISA for its surface panels. Uh, the wooden satellite will launch as part of a mission designed by Arctic Astronautics, a Finnish company manufacturing CubeSat kits for students. The mission is to test the behavior and durability of these plywood panels in the extreme conditions of space. I don't think anybody expects it to survive re-entry. I mean, maybe that's even better because it's just going to burn up faster. And I mean, can you think of like a less durable, like less fireproof material? I think, uh, oh, the next news is China is making a cardboard um, satellite. No, just kidding. But speaking of China, though, um, their Shenzhou 12 spacecraft docked at their space station. So we've talked about the fact that China built its own space station. Well, its first aircraft with three astronauts. So these three space flyers will stay aboard the station for three months. That's a new era for space. And that's all for the lightning round for this week. You know, to all our listeners, I'd just like to say welcome back to the lightning round. And uh, if you want to continue listening, uh, you're obligated to pat yourself on the back and uh, congratulate yourself for making it this far in the show. Uh, I know we sort of, uh, in the past, we brushed over this uh, 
G7 conference last week, uh, but the media has hailed it as a tremendous success. Uh, Biden was finally made to feel like a real uh, spearhead in this uh, in this uh, trident of uh, of world leaders, and so they discussed uh, you know things like global supply chains, uh, mainly how to address China. They talked about ransomware. Uh, obviously, Biden would have to address Russia with this. They talked about anti-corruption measures as well uh, that would apply to uh, many different countries. So, so throughout this, uh, Biden was harmonizing pretty well with the other leaders, uh, talking a big game about China and uh, Russia against them, I should say. Again, great success, real world leader stuff. But this was just one of the layovers in Biden's foreign uh, relations tour. Another one was in Geneva, where he met with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Uh, by most American rhetoric, one of the world's most uh, corrupt, authoritarian, uh, shady characters. Biden called him a killer on an interview in, with ABC, if you guys remember that. And there's uh, a lot of his campaign was hinged on how tough he would be on, on Putin. I was going to say that he probably doesn't remember it, but I've, Biden doesn't remember it, but we do. Uh, so, so now these two titans, I guess, finally meet. And they had a pretty lengthy conversation. They, they talked for about three hours. And of course, immediately after, press was ready with lots of questions. Now, I mean, an interesting aside is that ever since H.W. Bush and Gorbachev met in 1991, uh, these kinds of meetings, they always, they're always followed by a joint press conference. So mm-hmm. the two leaders stand side by side and they field questions from reporters from both countries uh, until now, that is. So Biden and Putin held uh, separate press conferences. And the differences to me were pretty big, you know, like in their responses to different uh, prompts. And so Putin responded to his questions with kind of sweeping general statements, whereas uh, Biden would answer questions a little slowly. But he went into pretty good detail about, you know, what he had to say to Mr. Putin during their talks. So remember the issues uh, that we came to tackle, mainly from G7. So like ransomware, military activity by Ukraine, and corruption. So in other words, you know, every time he, all the instances of Putin's uh, you know, suppressing protests and mm-hmm. uh, basically political opposition. And so Biden is going to be tough, right? Uh, so the first issue, uh, I'll say, was probably the most telling one. The ransomware attacks on solar winds uh, and especially Colonial Pipeline, they hit the very heart of America's populace. This is not Biden standing up for, you know, on behalf of Navalny, who's, you know, just wants to be a candidate for presidency. This is not, uh, you know, him standing up for Ukraine, which is a totally different country. Uh, but this is for the American people that were like panicking and filling Tupperware and plastic bags with gasoline. Uh, and so Putin afterwards basically said that, uh, you know, in, in response to this, like, yeah, we discussed it. It's an important issue. Both countries have an interest in cybersecurity, you know, general uh, kind of a general statement. And then Biden, on the other hand, again, this is the most telling. So he laid out a list, according to him, a list of 16 entities or targets that were strictly off limits uh, to cyber attack. Mm-hmm. So when asked what the consequences would be if he, you know, threatened military action, basically like, okay, like, yeah, there's a list, but what if they, what if they violate that list, and so to speak? And so Biden's response was, thank you very much, as he puts on his glasses and prepares to leave. Uh, here, I have, the, I have the clip here if you guys want to listen. Sure. Did the military response ever come up in this conversation today? Did you, in terms of the red lines that you laid down, is military response an option for a ransomware attack? And President Putin had called you in his press conference an experienced person. You famously told him he didn't have a soul. Do you now have a deeper understanding of him after this meeting? Thank you, Thank you very much. But on the military, there was military response, sir? No, we didn't talk about military response. Yeah, so that's, I mean, basically she asks him and then he says... Thank you very much. And then, I mean, like, this is obviously going into it like one of the most pressing issues. He gave them a list of 16 targets that's like, okay, these are off limits to cyber attack. Like, what is that? But even, what is that going to do? Even if you're treating him like an enemy, that's not like, that's not a tough stance at all because, like, everything else off the list is, is fair game for cyber attack. Like, <laughs> okay. you, yeah. I wonder if even Biden is aware, like, what a weak, um, like, thing that is because that's not even like a line in the sand. Because they asked him in that clip, it's like, did you threaten military action or any kind of consequences if if he like broke those, you know, if there was an attack from a Russian group on mm-hmm, these 16 mm-hmm. entities and he said, no, we didn't talk about it. Thank you very much. Yeah. I- I'm thinking like, what makes Russian hackers the best in the world? Like who said that they're the only ones who can hack other people? You know, like, why don't we address, first of all, it's on both sides. Like, I don't think that it's 
fair to just just because it's politically right now convenient to point to Russia and say that they're the ones doing it. Who's to say that it's not Americans hacking, you know, their own infrastructure for their own gain and blaming Russians, you know? That was kind of Putin's response, too. It's like, oh, yeah, there's, like, it's happening everywhere. But, I mean, to, like, talk such a big game about it and then go into it with, like... A typical Biden response? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) What else did we... What else could we expect? I don't know. I don't know if we expected uh, what he did on the other topics. So, like, the other one was military activity on the Ukraine border. And there's concerns, of course, about escalation from Russian-backed troops compounded with uh, China's activity by Taiwan, you know, with relation to U.S. But that's a different topic. Let's focus on what the president said. So Putin basically said, uh, uh, when pressed on the issue, he said, we refer back to the Minsk agreement, we'll wait till Ukraine fulfills their side, and then we'll be prepared to cooperate from our side. Uh, Biden admitted that not much progress was made, but it's important that Putin got to hear his disagreement. And so according to him, uh, we just have a different perspective on what to do about it. Yeah, again, I think this goes back to like Biden's foreign diplomacy in general. I mean, it's not just probably Biden's uh, diplomacy, it's sort of US, you know, so uh, one of the things that Putin pointed out is that he accused US of having an unpredictable foreign policy. The idea here is that in US, the politics change like the weather, right? Whoever's the next president, things will, will shift. Like if whoever's after Biden, Russia will enter a new era of new relationship on a foreign uh, level. So, I mean, he's right at that point that Russia just keeps doing their own thing. U.S. tends to bounce back and forth in terms of what matters to them and what doesn't from season to season, election season to election season. We can say, yeah, it's a passing thing and like, you know, Biden's not here forever, but <laughs> it's embarrassing. Like one, it's one thing for Biden to like go and make these, make these stipulations, like make these claims or whatever. Uh, but you look at Putin's response when he's, when he begins to actually like kind of bite back. Um, and that leads us to the third point. Um, which I wanted to follow up, follow up on, which was addressing Putin's corruption and how, uh, you know, Navalny was imprisoned. You know, opposition protests are suppressed uh, in Russia. And so remember, Biden, is he's coming in hot from the G7 meeting. Uh, he's going to be right. tough. So Putin's take is that Navalny was asking to be arrested, nothing to talk about there. The suppression of protests and op- opposing leaders, um, well, that's meant to prevent the same kind of disaster mm-hmm. that happened in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Disaster. 400 protesters detained, many facing jail terms of 20 plus years. A woman was shot and killed. Now, Biden, in response to this, uh, instead of pressing Putin on how he treats protesters in Russia, he decided that a better strategy would be to make it sound like Putin wasn't taking the disaster seriously enough. So he's like basically tried to make the capital riots sound even worse than that and say like, oh, like that comparison is not even fair because the situation uh, in the U.S. is far, far worse. Like this is the worst attack on democracy since the Civil War, if you guys remember. Uh, and so mm-hmm. we haven't really had a chance to dig into the January 6th riots. Maybe we don't need to, but I'm uh, having a hard time choosing between these points. What's the best example of Joe Biden being tougher on Putin than previous presidents? I don't know if this counts as being tough on him or not, but uh, Putin said that Biden did not invite him to the White House, but called the U.S. President Biden a balanced and professional man. He added that, I believe that for such meetings and visits to happen there should be conditions that should be ripe so i guess the meeting was probably more of a political stunt and it wasn't really meant to sting i don't think there's there's an issue big enough to to be concerned for putin they're just going to continue their own thing possibly partner with china and just move on right whether it's uh in Europe or in space for that matter i don't know like, just like looking over this whole you know interaction between Biden and, you know, the way that he responds and even in the end, you know, how he apologized for um, the way he responded to one of the reporters. It just kind of shows how unstable he is in a way, like in his emotions and in in his memory. Like there's a lot of times he will forget what he said, like in the previous sentence. So I'm just know. wondering how he's like even during the summit. Right. So we, we say there's issues and concerns about his mental acuity. But is he like fed information through the ear or something? Because in an interview, he said, you know, he got up on the podium recently and he was like and, and said, as always, they gave me this list of reporters to call on. So I'm calling on that reporter. Right. Like, I mean, I there gets to a point where they should just turn the teleprompter around and have us read it. Just kind of the end result. We see from Putin's press conference that he's largely unaffected. But I, I think he has bigger problems than mm-hmm. necessarily like what Biden's going to do to him. I mean, you guys mentioned that, you know, they're being friendly with China, but Every alliance, like, what's that quote? Every alliance has a horse and a rider. I think it's only a matter of time before 
before Russia and China begin to have issues. Um, but the thing is, this particular meeting, yeah, it was kind of a it was kind of a theatrical uh, boost for for each president. It's like, oh, hey, we're meeting up, we're having conversations. Putin, you mentioned that he gave kind of a backhanded compliment to Biden, calling him an experienced statesman, a statesman, but it made it clear that the situation was unchanged. So he played it very cool, not uncharacteristic of him, I guess. I'm not going to harp on Biden uh, for being weak and an ineffective diplomat. It's too easy at this point. I just mm-hmm. feel bad. Uh, it, like if I if I could ask him one question. And it would be, why did you run for president? Like, what made you think, uh, what made you think you would be good at even like the smallest parts of this job? Uh, it's depressing. But this too will pass. Right now is the time for our nation to do some soul searching, uh, really figure out what we stand for and these ideals that we hold dearest to us. You know, people may fail us, the kingdoms rise and fall. Uh, although it seems like our nation is a shell of its former self, we all have, uh, like, we all have personal responsibilities, and that's to do everything we can to protect and care for our own. I know it's cliche, but it's good to bear in mind, you know, Jesus is still on the throne. Uh, we're strangers in this land. Religion and prayer in school continues to be one of the most controversial issues in the U.S. today. Ever since the U.S. Supreme Court first ruled against school-sponsored prayer in 1962 in Engel v. Vital, the justices have consistently ruled against any prayer or worship that was school-sponsored, so sports events, assemblies, or any over-the-public-address system announcements. On the other hand, voluntary student-initiated religious activities were always permitted as long as it wasn't forced on those who don't want to be involved. Throughout history, we can see how Christianity has been pushed out of our schools, starting in the 1800s with the teaching of the evolution theory as the foundation of life, and later on in the 1960s, Um, by taking prayer out of schools. And now we see the progression of the LGBTQ movement, critical race theory, and the addition of sex ed curriculum into grades as young as kindergartners that are taking precedence and shaping the minds of the future generations. What result can we expect from this kind of education? You, you brought a good analysis there is that this kind of has been a downslide. As as we go more enlightened, more Innovative in our, I don't know, approach and understanding of the world, as, as, as I guess scientists put it, we tend to slide more deeper and deeper, degrading, you know, in our morals. I mean, correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation, but you see, like, uh, our society as a whole, I guess, going kind of in this uh, downhill trend. And a lot of that is downstream from our, from our like, education systems. And, like, it, it really is just kind of a cesspool of, like, social conditioning. Um, and so, like, yeah, you, you say this doesn't necessarily mean that it caused it, but the, like, starting to teach evolution theory uh, instead of, uh, you know, creation or intelligent design, uh, you know, taking prayer out of schools, uh, you take that stuff out, it has to be replaced with something else. Um, and so, like, it's just a question of these things, are they objectively more beneficial? And I, w- I would say they're not. There's, there's still family impact on, on, a, on a child's education, you know, when a person is growing up. So it's not to say that school is to blame for everything, but yeah, when you remove God from the place that's supposed to educate you about the life and the future in the world, you're, you're going to see it reflect. Okay, so yeah, going off of what you said, um, there is other influences on on how a, a, a child is raised and the, the mm-hmm. beliefs that are instated, you know, not just through education. Um, but with that being said, there are currently roughly around 15 states that have reinstated prayer into schools. Um, specifically setting aside time for students and teachers to pray. So the rest of them, though, um, have confined prayer to just voluntary student-initiated um, activities. So as I was doing some research on different states and you know what their regulations are, mm-hmm. a few states st- stood out to me, uh, like Alabama, North Dakota, and Montana, specifically their regulations in school mm-hmm. uh, regarding prayer. Uh, so in Alabama, teachers and professors in any public edu- educational institution within the state, recognizing that the Lord God is one at the beginning of any homeroom or any class may pray and may lead willing students in prayer. Really? Yeah. I, I, I did not know this. So, because I saw the headline that you're, you know, you, you were working on, but I did not know that. Mm. Did you know that? Yeah, I, I just read the Florida one. I thought it was, I thought that's yeah. what, yeah. But wow. yeah, and then there's Montana, um, who allows a teacher, principal, or superintendent to open the whole school day with a prayer. Um, and North North Dakota is another state that allows a student to voluntarily pray aloud 
or participate in religious speech at any time before, during, or after the school day. Um, to the same extent as a student may voluntarily speak or participate in secular speech. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is uh, pretty much common sense to me because both are considered a freedom of speech. You know, if the people want to stand against prayer in schools in order to pr- protect the First Amendment for those who do not pray or choose not to pray, it kind of goes both ways in this case. You know, when students or teachers are banned from praying aloud, it is a direct infringement of their First Amendment rights. Um, what are your thoughts um, on, you know, allowing teachers or, you know, principals or superintendents to lead students in prayer? No, I, I just, I, I feel like I'm conflicting because from my uh, Christian background, I'm thinking this is a great thing. It should be in schools, right? The prayer should be brought back in schools. And only because uh, unlike any other religion in this country, Christians do have a claim in terms of being the founding of this country. Like, it was founded on Christianity. In fact, the reason why I think the country still is what it is and hasn't fallen apart is because the Christian fibers still hold it together. And so, in that sense, I'm inclined to say, yeah, we should have prayers in school. But then, by saying that, you do open it up to a bunch of other religions. So, next in line will be Satanists. And they will line up and say, well, you know what? If a teacher is a Satanist teacher, she can also initiate a prayer now at the beginning. And what makes her prayer different from a Christian prayer? That's why I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted to see like, okay, it's kind of good. Maybe there should be a time of reflection or prayer for, for students, but not necessarily led by teachers. Because it just opens up a whole can of worms, which might come back to bite Christianity. Yeah, I mean, the, the theocratic fascist in me is uh, likes to hear this kind of news, but uh, at the same time, like, I was reading the article about Florida, and so, it, to me, it seemed like uh, when Ron DeSantis said that, like, basically, like, oh, it's a time for meditation or, like, general, um, like, you can pray to whoever you want. And so, that, to me, um, my takeaway from that is, like, it's it's being blown up to be like a huge um uh it's it's being blown up to be like a like a huge step in like a, a theocratic measures and so obviously like you said alex that would lead to like backlash uh from from atheists uh, atheists satanists that just want to like make a point there's a huge stigma attached to where i mean obviously with protests happening um people like kneeling for the anthem mm. or like it's it was considered super unpatriotic to like not say the pledge of allegiance and stuff like that and so like when you allow students to like yeah a lot this time for people to pray i think it's okay for teachers to lead them in prayer but um at the same time it opens up possibilities for this to be uh, like manipulated i guess and so like Misused, yeah. you in the same way that pledge of allegiance is like you have uh, like little kids that don't that can't even process like what it means but you still like have to stand up and say it. there's a lot involved here more so than we would think yeah you guys are both right it can you know easily go downhill from from this like it, it seems like it's heading in a good direction but that's not always the case because it's it's always much deeper than on the surface um so moving on uh, although prayer is allowed in the above mentioned states um the ones that i brought up we still see a pretty big resistance against christianity and religion in school nowadays um just this month um the american center for law and justice which was founded in 1990 created a petition to defend students religious liberty in schools after a story broke out about a girl who was banned from bringing her Bible to school. Although the school um, later on reversed their decision, um, it is absurd that this was even an issue to begin with um, because the article states that there were no complaints or any disruption of school curriculum while the girl, you know, took out her Bible and read it on her own time at recess. Um, This clearly speaks to the fact that religion is, you know, under attack, you could say, in our schools. Um, and this is only one of the many stories that, you know, I I saw about children in schools being harassed and threatened with punishment for doing, you know, things such as drawing a picture of Jesus or doing book reports on um, from books of the Bible and even reading the Bible. So she was, her, her Bible was taken away because she was reading at recess, apparently, mm-hmm. huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, nobody said anything until, you know, a teacher saw that and 
she just didn't like it. So she... It's not like she even caused a a disturbance or anything like that. No. It was just, okay. You know, speaking on prayer and, you know, allowing prayers in in schools this past week on Monday in Florida, the governor, um, Ron DeSantis, visited a South Florida Jewish temple to denounce anti-Semitism and stand with Israel, where he also signed a bill into law that will require public schools in, in the state of Florida to set aside at least one minute of silence for children to meditate or pray. Uh, during his speech, he said, it's something that is important to be able to provide each student the ability every day to be able to reflect and pray as they see fit. You know, my thoughts are school is a busy time. And, you know, oftentimes there there's barely any time in between classes to use the restroom or much less to have, you know, a prayer. So I think I think setting aside some time specifically for prayer is a step in the right direction. Um, it's a sign of respect for those who cherish and value prayer, and it also allows students who want to pray outside of their recess, lunch, or break times that opportunity. Yeah, no, I think this is uh, actually a good thing. Like because this doesn't restrict, this doesn't put you in a box of Christianity per se. Pray to whatever God you want, but here's the time acknowledging that we are a religious society in a big way. And so offering a moment for that, uh, whatever your religion is, that's great. I think that's a better solution than having uh, the teacher pray. You know, the previously mentioned petition ended their clause with a very powerful quote as well. Um, Religious liberty is the cornerstone of America and our children are its future. Uh, The Bible, prayer, Christian faith is all under attack in our public schools. And as in the life of any believer, our foundation must be rooted in our faith in God. And the same could be said for our nation. Well, that's all for the stories for this week. We are so glad that you've joined us for another episode of LifeRing. Please consider following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Just type in LifeRing Podcast and also consider sharing it with a friend or family member that would benefit from a weekly overview of the current events from a conservative and Christian perspective. And as always, we would like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day than the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would be saved. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring and we'll see you next week. See you. Bye.